Hello and welcome to episode 29 of For Art's Sake, an art history and museum podcast. I'm your host, Rhea. So for the next couple of weeks, I'm going to be um, sharing some pre-recorded episodes for the podcast, which I know is like a weird way to say that because technically, yes, of course, all my episodes are pre-recorded, but really I'm doing so in advance. Um, and I'm not sure exactly which episodes are going to be for which week. I'll figure it out. It's all good. But I definitely wanted to, for the first episode, say that I'm doing that. Um, and I'll probably have a reminder for the other episodes. Um, but basically next weekend, I'm going to be going on a little staycation about an hour away from home with my fiance to celebrate our anniversary when we first started, when we first got back together slash our whole anniversary, whatever. <laughs> um, but since I'll be gone and I don't want to take another break or be late with the episodes, um, I'm going to be working on it beforehand and I might, you know, just try and be better with preparing episodes, whatever. But that is what it is. I hope that makes sense. I think it does, but I worry about it, it not making sense. Um, and another thing to talk about. Um, so by now you've probably heard about the police murder of 16 year old Micaiah Bryant. Um, and I'm not here to argue that children distress shouldn't be murdered. I shouldn't have to do that. Um, especially in the country and society that we live in where actual murderers, you know, we celebrate them. Right. Right. Like that man from Wisconsin. Right. Okay. Anyway. Um, and I'm definitely, I'm not going to find excuses to why she deserved to be murdered. That's not the place for this. And I'm not going to hear anything about it. And if you're going to do that, I suggest you turn off my podcast right now Unfollow, block, whatever. Don't waste your time sending me an email. Um, because simply put, she should be, she should be alive. Um, currently I've not seen any Venmos or cash apps or GoFundMes or anything like that, um, that have been credited. Um, I will try and update the description of the episode in the future if I do come across some form of help like that. But I will also suggest two of my favorite Instagrams, iHeartErica, which is I-H-A-R-T-E-R-I-C-K-A, and Ashley Chubby Bunny, which is A-S-H-L-E-I-G-H. C-H-U-B-B-Y-B-U-N-N-Y, as they always have resources, um, but really they have multiple posts on their feeds of, and I also think um, in the story highlights of Black people, particularly Black women and femmes and trans folks and fat people that you can give money to if you are able to, um, because that's one of the best ways just to help people. Um and clearly, Derek Chauvin being found guilty has not really changed things. And if you did think that, you're definitely a partner in white supremacy and you need to work on that. Okay. It did not fix things. It was not the end all be all. Um, <laughs> because this was in part a relief to a lot of black people. And it was especially a relief to his George Floyd's family and friends and the community as well. But everyone knows full well that the real justice is the end of police murders and that George Floyd should still be here. And this is just one tiny thing. It's also one of the officers involved. And a lot of people have been saying this. Derek Chauvin was basically offered up as like a sacrifice to try and make it seem like the system is working, which it isn't. And that this violence this police violence is somehow on an individual basis when it isn't because the whole saying is a bad apple spoils the bunch. 
So don't let him being found guilty distract you. And also, um, <laughs> don't act like this is over. So, um, let's begin with today's episode. So this week, I'm going to be talking about one of my favorite things in the history of art, which is anaconism. Um, but first, I want to just try and explain one thing when it comes to Islamic art. So there is, or rather should be, a distinction between Islamic art and art from the world of Islam or Islamic world. And basically what I mean by that is that, you know, when we look at art history and we say Christian art, we mean a specific type of art style. Of course, there can be different types of art style, but it is the specific portrayal of like Jesus and Mary and all the other folks involved, right? We don't call European art Christian art, even though there might be Christian themes. The same thing typically goes for Buddhist art um, and Jewish art. We get it, right? So unfortunately, that does not apply necessarily to Islamic art and art from the Islamic world. So basically, the study, the Western study, I should say, of Islamic art and art from those countries where Islam is the primary religion or the dominant religion, is a very new concept. And the categorization um, of this art as Islamic art is definitely a modern concept. It was created in the 19th century by art historians. And specifically, it was to look at art and other material that was created by Islamic people um, from Arabia in the 7th century. But unfortunately, we take that and apply it to basically everything and everyone. And like I said, we don't do that with like European art where Christianity is the dominant religion. Um, We simply say Christian art, European art, blah, 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 blah. We are starting to see ourselves move away from that in academic circles, you know, scholars, and also museums, but it's still um, a complicated thing. A lot of people don't realize, I mean, we all say Islamic art, right? They don't necessarily realize the issue with that. So when we talk about art from like the Middle East, um, where places, you know, where the dominant religion is Islam, we'll talk about what we say art from the Islamic world or art from the world of Islam. I've seen both. I just say Islamic world because that's just easier to say. Um, and then when we talk about art that is specifically for a religious purpose, we can say Islamic art and that's no problem. So what I'm going to be talking about primarily today is art that is created for a religious purpose that has certain um, rules and styles and choices that align with religious morality, that align with rules that were set up because of religion, if that makes sense. Um, I don't know if I worded that right. Um, And then I'm also going to be talking about art that isn't like that, that does not follow that, because simply there's all kinds of different art in these places. There's different, you know, patrons, there are different like kings and religious figures or people who are commissioning art, who are making art for different reasons, just like anywhere else. Um, And like I said, we are starting to move away from this a little bit. An example is the Met, where they changed their galleries of Islamic art to galleries for the art of the Arab lands, Turkey, Iran, Central Asia, and later South Asia, which uh, is a more accurate 
encompassing of these specific countries, the different art sales that would have come out of them that aren't necessarily religious art, but just happen to be made by Muslim people or when um, Islam was dominant, past or present. But what I am, again, specifically talking about today aligns more with actual religious art. Um, so let's actually get back to the topic. So what I'm talking about today is a term called anachronism, and I'm specifically talking about it in Muslim art, uh, or Islamic art, rather, and art that comes from the Islamic world. Now, of course, this style of art and artistic choice exists outside of that. Um, there's quite a lot. It's definitely more prominent in monotheistic religions. Of course, I think that makes um, sense. But it's basically the absence of figural representations, basically. So humans and animals. But it can also extend to the absence of any material representation, um, not just of our natural, you know, normal, regular world, but also the supernatural kind of world. Um, portraying um, maybe spirits or gods and goddesses, you know, or guides in a form that is not abstracted. So any sort of figural form. Specifically in Islam, it's avoiding any sort of image of a human or an animal, any sentient being really, um, because it also includes Allah. Um, and it basically <laughs> boils down to that God, their job is cre the creation of people and animals in the world. Um, so it'd be really rude of you <laughs> to try and do the same thing. Like, that's not your place. Um, and I think that's actually really, really interesting. It definitely creates this kind of, I wouldn't say barrier, but it's like, okay, God created you you'll do your thing, leave the rest up to God, like it's all cool. And we don't want to kind of bother that and be disrespectful. Um, and this leads to beautiful, beautiful art. Um, and I just think it's really interesting how we take this belief, even though, yes, um, it does before anybody comes at me, it does not specifically say in the Quran that, oh, any visual representation of, like, a human is, like, super bad. But it does use a specific word, um, which is uh, Musawir, um, M-U-S-A-W-W-I-R, which is maker of forms. Um, and that is used as, like, a descriptor word for God, for Allah. Um, so, and then this isn't necessarily part of the Quran as well, but there are, um, I guess like scriptures or whatever that, um, come from Muhammad, um, where basically any, <laughs> I don't know how to describe it better. So because of this, a lot of the Islamic art that we see and art that are in these Islamic areas is predominantly, at least on the public side, 
um, geometric, um, very organic, and there's also a lot of calligraphy, um, which is stunning, absolutely stunning. I'm looking at an image right now of an uh, interior of a mosque, and I saw a TikTok recently. I wish I saved it, but it was basically about the history of minimalism being this like actually very racist thing, which I, I need to talk about. Um, but basically this guy was like, uh, ornateness, um, is like really childish and bad and unhuman, which is like not how humans are. And they showed images of mosques, um, and just how highly ornate they are. And like, wouldn't the world just be so much better if that's just what everything looked like. And I agree. Um, even though minimalism might have some of its place and it might look nice, it is me and minimalism are not friends. Um, but what I, before I talk about specific examples and what anaconism and Islamic art will look like, I do want to preface like the rest of this episode because I am going to talk about it a little bit, but this is not all art of the Islamic world. And it's also not all Islamic art. Um, this is just interpretations and different processes and approaches throughout time, particularly by Muslim artists for the purpose of being, you know, Islamic art, like decorating mosques. Um, and it does happen in the space, but there's so much art and so many people and so much time. Um, but in particular, like this was more public spaces, religious spaces, obviously, if you are following that kind of like moral, that rule, and that, you know, that respect for your God, if that is what you're doing, religious public spaces are going to be like that. But in private spaces, where it is not religious, you are going to definitely see different things. This is particularly, particularly notable within like palaces, um, which I will talk about. But first, of course, I do want to talk about um, actual examples of anaconism and what exactly it means in regards to Islamic art, what that looks like. Because of course, anaconism looks different basically everywhere. So let's talk about Islamic geometric patterns, which are one of the ways that they, uh, that artists, um, went around the use of figural portrayals. Um, it's one of, I think, the more common, um, notable styles that is very identifiable. So in regards to buildings in particular, buildings being a great way to spread um, style because they're very public, multiple people go to them, they make pilgrimages, they move around, you know, stuff like that. So in regards to, you know, the stages of this geometric design inspired by the buildings. The earliest um, example of a uh, geometric shape comes from the Great Mosque of Kedaron in Tunisia, um, where they saw where they had eight pointed stars. Um, and the middle stage is identified with the development of these stars. Um, and combining six and eight point stars, particularly um, in the Inbtulun Mosque in Cairo, um, the earliest example of this being 1879 CE, or sorry, not 1879, 879. Um, this continued 
this sort of pattern continued um, with more of these six and eight point shapes um, and further abstraction of these shapes seen um, throughout Egypt, as well as six point patterns in Turkey. Then we see the seven and 10 point Giri patterns, which is a combination of heptagons, pointed stars, hexagons, and triangles, um, which first appeared in 1086 CE in the Jama Mosque, Mosque of Isfahan. This 10 point or 10 point Giri pattern um, spread in multiple um, places in the Islamic world, though notably not in the Spanish Al Andalus. I don't and and um and this abstraction adding additional points to the pattern um became more widespread with 10 11 13 points um and then by the end of the middle stage we began to see geary rosette patterns which is notable for um appearing in 1220 ce at the aladdin mosque in konya turkey and then the late stage is um notable because of more specific regional styles um for example in cairo in 1321 ce we see a 16 point pattern at the hassan sadak mausoleum and then we also see in this similar style in spain in the alhambra in 1338 ce um and then another specific regional style is the 16 point geometrical patterns found in the Sultan Hassan complex in 1363 CE, and then the 14-point pattern at the Jama Masjid um, at, uh, in India in 1571 CE. Um, of course, like I said, these were buildings. These were primarily mosques or mausoleums, even towers. And these were kind of like notable instances because they're highly influential. Pattern making, of course, was not just on buildings. Um, there's lots of ways to put, you know, use geometric patterns. Um, this includes ceramics and glass and woodwork. Um, ceramics is especially notable, um, just Islamic pottery in general. Um, having worked at the Walters Art Museum, I saw quite a lot of this as in the medieval section. Um, because I would stand there a lot. <laughs> so now that we talked about like kind of the evolutions, let's talk about the more specific style per item, <laughs> right? So <laughs> let's start with um, tilings and woodwork. So I had mentioned when I talked about the evolution, the Geary, Geary pattern, which is G-I-R-I-H, and I'm probably mispronouncing. I've had a couple different pronunciations, including when I was in school. So take that with a grain of salt, basically. But basically it's an interlaced pattern um, that has five shapes, different shapes that you can use. Um, it is especially notable um, in decorative woodwork and architecture from Persian Islamic peoples. So basically Iran. Um, so you can use stucco, for example, or um, like a brickwork. And in woodwork, it can be used in like a lattice frame or like a door or something like that.
Um, so another way to utilize geometric patterns in a specific way um, is the jolly, um, which is stone screens with repeated patterns. Um, this is an example that comes from Indo-Islamic architecture, notably. Um, and we see this actually, everybody knows this building, the Taj Mahal. This is a perfect example, like if you want to know the Jolly style. Um, basically, there's polygons, um, usually five and eight pointed stars. It's very symmetrical and very, very repetitive. So this sort of style is typically seen with windows, walls, doors. Um, and what's really interesting is that it typically makes a private setting, but also brings in light, which is really beautiful. And obviously the Taj Mahal is gorgeous. Um, this began as in Indo-Islamic architecture and specifically was Islamic, but of course has spread throughout India. So not all Jolly style um, and use of it is Islamic. So that's why we say uh, world or, or the Islamic world, you know. Um, another example, like I mentioned, is ceramics. And ceramics could be its own podcast or multiple podcasts. But typically on ceramics, you have more of like an organic style, maybe circular motifs. Um, you can have a bunch of different shapes because it really depends the shape you're working with, with in regards to the ceramic. So it really also depends on the item. So examples like a plate um, might have stripes. Um, you know, something more circular like a jug might have more organic circular motifs. It's, it's pretty simple like that, really, <laughs> but really gorgeous and is a great example of this type of approach. Uh, next, we have um, leather work, which is basically embossed with geometric patterns. Um, these leather work specifically is notable because it was typically leather was used as a book cover. That is what we would use, you know, for an important book, Bible. Quran. Um, and in the Quran, because it is a religious text, um, and like I said, with public religious buildings, you would typically not have figural design. Of course, it makes sense to have these book bindings have this um, non-figural, <laughs> is that a word, abstract design on it. You might have geometric patterns, um, you might have additions added, like medallions added to the leather that have geometric patterns. Um, the, you can have geometric braiding. You can have it on the pages, too. I mean, of course, I'm talking about leather work in, in particular, but like the books. <laughs> um, then we have stained glass, which is a personal favorite. Justin, oh, stained glass is just so, so cool. And one day, yes, I am going to have an episode on the history of stained glass because it's so, so interesting and Ugh, okay, so um, stained glass is used in a variety of different ways all across the Islamic world. Um, and what's unfortunate, however, is that older examples of stained glass don't necessarily survive because it's glass and it's easy to break. Um, so a lot of it just, it just frankly has not survived, but we might also have evidence of it from the like wood parts of the window. It really depends. Anyway, um, Stained glass would just simply 
have these, it's not really simple, but just be geometrically patterned. Um, this includes, or an example of it is the Shabaka window, which is six, eight, and 12 point stars. Um, and it would be a combination of decorative glass as well as wood frames. Um, it would be a combination of that. And you could also bring different styles from like woodworking um, and windows and doors into these stained glass windows. Stained glass is not going to be like what we are known or what we know are more familiar with in regards to Tiffany, um, Tiffany glass, because it simply was not the same technology. Um, this is why I want to talk about stained glass for an episode. Um, glazed windows, stained glass, um, could also be used outside of wood frames and it could be used in, um, like a stucco like pattern, which is, um, particularly notable in Turkey. Then we have metalwork, um, which is, wow, encompasses a lot because there's so many different types of metals and so many things you can do and adorn it with. Um, so we see a lot of geometric patterns used as borders on metal. Um, and there's like floral designs, um, abstracted animal motifs, but also notably calli calligraphy. Oh my gosh, I can't say that. Um, and there are different items that are going to be made out of metal. So of course you're going to have like ceramics, maybe bowls or like dishes, plates, trays, stuff like that, um, that might be decorated, though there is wear and tear. Um, but you also have um, jewelry and other, other metal adornments on our persons, as well as weapons. And um, oh my gosh, what is the term? When you are in war and you put metal on yourself. Armor! Oh boy. Um, the Walters Art Museum has really great examples of really gorgeous like swords that combine um this like it, these abstracted patterns um this metal work as well as jewel jewels added or other like fabrics So next up, we're going to be talking about Islamic specific calligraphy. Um, of course, I think we all know what calligraphy technically is, and it's simply an artistic practice of handwriting. Um, and when we talk about the is, uh, talk about Islamic calligraphy in particular, this includes Persian, Arabic, Ottoman, and Indian calligraphy um, used in an Islamic way. I think that makes sense. It seems very blunt, though. Um, the development of this art style of this calligraphy style is because of the Quran and the widespread use um, or reading <laughs> widespread readings oh, okay of the Quran um, because not only was it like the development of language and characters um, allow people to read text easier um, it also is tied to the artistic <laughs> Toby, what are you doing? My cat is standing on a shelf right now looking around. You're not jumping on that, sir. You are very old and fragile. And you're not going to do that because there's stuff there. Don't be a bad boy. Yeah, I'm talking to you. 
Um, I don't know where I was. <laughs> It'll give me one second. Um, uh, calligraphy is not just about the absence of figures. Please don't jump on there, Toby. It wasn't necessarily just like, oh, we have to work around this. It is on, like a totally separate art style, but it is also important to talk about because there is the lack of figural design and it was often, you know, used as a religious way to express art. Um, writing and the use of the pen and ink um, and the shape of these characters is specifically important to um, Islam. Hi. Now he's purring. I don't know if you can hear him. <laughs> oh my goodness. I can't talk about this. Um, there are two um, very notable, probably the major styles of calligraphy that I'm going to be talking about. So the first one is Tufik, which is, um, I think, one of the more identifiable styles. Um, it basically consists of very, like, kind of angular, linear characters. Um, it is the oldest form of Arabic script. It originally began as 17 letters without any accents. And then when they added accents to make the Quran easier to read, it bumps the characters up to 28. Um, when you see it, it is very linear um just i don't know it's just very pretty the way that the lines stretch out and it's almost organic and the way that it may be used kind of like like a stem growing um and this style was very copied um by europeans in uh the medieval age and Next up um, is the uh, Nask approach uh, to calligraphy. My cat is touching me. Leave me alone. Um, this is a more, and I guess this is also, they're both very identifiable. Very like when you see them, you know them kind of things, right? Um, it's just when I think about calligraphy, I think about like, Cufic and like how it kind of stretches and it, of course it can stretch vertically as well as horizontally and it's just like woo, woo, right okay um nosk is a more cursive approach i guess it is cursive i don't actually know what cursive technically means right i mean i know what cursive is but what are the characteristics of it the characters are connected i basically is um and this type of calligraphy is actually um, used for uh, informal purposes, which is different than what we think is cursive now. Um, as Islam spread throughout the region, um, they needed to have a new type of way of writing and reading. Um, so this kind of is a development of the previous styles. Um, it's notable because it, it is very cursive. It is very, like, flowing. There's this, like, I want to say dancing elegance, and I don't know what I mean by that, but, like, there is this movement to it. Um, it's just, just frankly, very, very pretty. Um, calligraphy can be used on a variety of things, and I think I already mentioned examples before, but calligraphy can be painted, it can be stamped, 
embossed. It can be put on ceramics, on metalwork, on jewelry, on buildings. And of course, notably um, in the Quran, like using calligraphy on the outside or in the margins, stuff like that. And of course, in the actual text, there might be a more visual element instead of just having the straight up text. We have seen this with basically every single example of religious texts where they, you're, you know, if you're going to have your Quran, your Bible inside your home, which is probably very expensive, especially if it's, it has decoration, if it has leather, it's very important. That's why people have like family Bibles that are passed down. They are important features in the home. My guess, why are you so loud? And so why not have it be adorned with further decoration? Because it is this beautiful, meaningful text. It is this beautiful, meaningful item. Why don't you just go the step forward? There are other types of styles that are more regional. Um, they have the Cine style, which is from China, which is a combination um, basically of Chinese calligraphy, as well as the two different styles, the notable styles that I had already mentioned. Um, then you also have um, the Sudani style um, from the area of Sudan. Um, the Diwani style, which comes from the Ottoman Turks in the 16th and 17th century, um, which is a, a more heavy stylization that is prominent um, for being featured in court documents and was highly influential from there. The final specific style that I'm maybe talking about is the arabesque, um, which isn't necessarily just the lack of or avoidance of um, sentient figures, but it certainly is a part of that. It can also be like its whole other thing, right? So it simply is this very identifiable style from the um, Islamic world that is a combination of patterns typically that are organic. So like foliage, floral, tendrily things, um, but also it can be very linear. Um, and this is typically combined with other styles or like elements. Again, it can be on its own. It can be more abstraction, but it can also be combined with figural elements. Um, <laughs> when and this style specifically is called arabesque for a reason. Um, it isn't specifically just Islamic. That's why we say um, from the Islamic world. The spread of Islam um, also helped to spread this style and um, not only allowed for it to appear everywhere, more places, but also to change regionally. Um, so again, like Islam is very important in the spreading of the style, but it isn't inherently Islamic. Um, but it is also used as a decoration of Islamic items like Qurans, for example. This would, would be a very popular style um, used inside and outside of a Quran. Like I said, the spread of Islam meant different uses of this style. Um, and it really also depends how it's used, like what it's used on. So um, an example of an architectural use is the palace facade from the Mashada in Jordan, which is now located in a Berlin museum. Um, and we think 
that it dates to 740 CE. Basically, um, these are very, very large walls. And we have this combination of like this more organic style um, with a geometric style. So talking about the main part of the facade, which is like these kind of like zigzaggy, almost like chevron. I guess it wouldn't be chevron, but it's like, like a single chevron. Um, these kind of triangles. And they're also these very large rosettes. And if you look closely, not only are the like kind of empty spaces highly decorated or, um, but the rosettes themselves have further patterned decoration that are these like weaving leafy thingies, but within the triangles as well as borders of the triangles are a continual like organic looping kind of pattern. But if you look also very closely at the bottom under like some of these large rosettes that exist within the chevron kind of pattern, there are animal designs. This is a great example of the design itself, the arabesque style, but also in combination with um, sentient kind of figures, right? But it is a very notable one. So what about one sort of example that does not include a figural design because that's kind of what we're talking about right now. An example of that would be um, the, it's basically a signature. Um, I mean, that is what it is. So it's the Ottoman Tugra of Suleiman the Magnificent. That was his signature. Um, signatures or Tugras were like these highly ornate artistic things all on their own. Um, this one is dated 1520. CE and you see his name but it's so abstracted like you have this big loop and within that loop are there's like this it is filled with like these spirals of like little blossoming plants and leaves and in different colors in different like parts of the um, entire signature you see a so sort of similar pattern but if you look really really close like there's more of a golden pattern with like red and green and it's more like tendril like. And then you have like ones that have like these bursts like wheat. Um, and then of course you have the, the calligraphy as well. It, it is really gorgeous. And um, another example, um, my final example here, <clears throat> sorry, is a tile. Tiles are, I love tiles by the way. Um, this tile is the uh, is Nick title title uh, tile dated 1560 CE um, that comes from Qatar and it is a white based tile with this kind of looping patterned lines that are decorated like if you kind of follow the designs they kind of like make shapes and it makes sense um, in the center and then in the center of the four different sides there is like this rosette kind of thing there's greens and blues and orange and it's so gorgeous and it i think that um a lot of times when we kind of look at these abstracted designs especially if they're highly 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 ornate they can almost come off as like dizzying what i really love is that if you really look at it it just feels you get through that dizziness right where it's just like oh yeah it's like almost like a maze and it makes sense um, this is a highly influential um, and even appropriated style that we see throughout the rest of the world, especially the Western world. Um, I think that 
I mean, it was highly just it was just highly influential. Um, and of course, we you know these kind of abstract styles do exist in every society, but they were um, definitely used in Orientalism. Babe, can you get up? This isn't necessarily like a specific style um, of anaconism, but it kind of fits in a way and it's the circumvention methods. Um, there were ways that because regionally figural art was just the type of art, there are ways that Muslim people, Muslim artists kind of navigated um, not portraying figures or certain figures. So in particular, so in different regions, yes, you might portray figures, but you're not going to portray Allah like and bring like a human form to Allah when you're definitely also not going to portray Muhammad. Um, and I think that's something a lot of people know and have total misconceptions about. Um, but it's just simply a part of somebody's religion. It's really not that hard to understand. So when specifically it came to like figures like Muhammad, um, they would hide his face in different ways um, and give him like baggy clothing to not really show his actual form. Um, a great example of this comes from um, the 16th century. Um, it is this Persian um, miniature painting that has Muhammad um, ascending into heavens and he is cloaked by like baggy clothing. We kind of see his human body, if you will, but there's like this fiery sort of pattern that blocks us looking at his facial features. And that was an appropriate way for them to circumnavigate um, the rules and not be blasphemous. Like I've mentioned multiple times, it wasn't just this anaconism. I'm struggling to say that word. But um there of course there there were human and animal animal um figures and motifs, but the way that they are portrayed and where they are portrayed makes it a little bit different. So one, in different regional areas, as Islam spread to different areas, um, whether it stayed in that area or not. There were existing cultures that might have had certain motifs like mythical creatures that already existed within their culture that may have adapted to Islam design or um, with the anaconism concept. Um, there were examples within history where art that did portray more like human forms, mythical creatures, where they were destroyed and there's barely, um, there's not a lot of existing um art left over from that time. Um, the art that does exist from that, those examples was because they were already pillaged and were in a different area, but that isn't the case everywhere. Um, animal and human motifs when they were used were more abstracted, more stylized, incorporating the different styles, um, design styles that I already mentioned before, especially that arabesque style where, where we've already seen that. Um, I described the facade that had underneath, like, in the chevron kind of pattern and the rosette. There was, like, the kind of basic animal shape, like a bear or a lion, that was kind of notable within the design because of the, the lines and the shape, but was very much incorporated 
within that abstracted design. Um, and that's basically the examples that you would see within like this time frame of art history. Um, different examples, um, you might have um, different sort of narratives that aren't exactly Islamic that might incorporate, um, again, like these kind of basic, almost abstracted, stylized, whatever, figures within the narrative. Um, and you may also have more fantastical, mythical beasts sort of motifs, such as like griffins, um, which again come from a regional thing that may have been carried over into a more Islamic sphere of art making. Um, it really depends on the region and the time period. But a lot of people, and it makes sense, think that the only type of Islamic art that existed was anachronism. And that just simply isn't the fact. There, It's such a large scope of time. There's so many different regions and even different types of Islamic like practices, like different sectors of Islam, if you will, and different rulers and all kinds of stuff. There are many examples of figural design and representation within Islamic art and also in the, the Islamic world of art. Um, and you know, not everything is just so black and white. And it's just an unfortunate part of like, kind of like the way that we look at their art and the history of art from a Western lens. Of course, in present day, there are some ongoing issues with anachronism, um, definitely used by the Taliban. And I think one of the most notable examples that we all kind of know and misjudge is the um, representation of Muhammad. Um, a lot of people purposely to be Islamic phobic represent Muhammad and there have been terrorist attacks and personal violence, um, interpersonal violence and stuff related to that, um, which I'm not going to go too into because this is focusing on ancient art, but it absolutely, unfortunately does exist and does have some connection, but that isn't simply, you know, we can't paint the entirety of Islamic art history and anachronism specifically as a concept with just being inherently violent. Um, it's not very fair, especially since a lot of like powerful art, um, like Christian, Christian, Christian art also has its fair share of violence. Um, but we may not look at it with that history in that context, especially the contemporary context. Um, with the invention, of course, of photography and film, this sort of idea of anachronism has been really difficult. And different people, different rulers, different countries have dealt with it in different ways. Some of the ways has been like banning film for a while and then eventually giving up on that because it's quite impossible. Instead, people look at the use of photography and film as very much different than the creation of a figural being, if you will. So one of the reasons why there is such an issue is because to simplify things, Muhammad basically had, I don't know if a scripture is like the correct way to, to say it, um, but it comes from what is called the Hadith, which is traditions of the prophet. Um, basically, the concept is that like painters or artists breathe life into their um, artistic creations, which makes it part of the problem that further, you know, that makes it's emphasized by that one thing in the Quran I mentioned. Um, this goes a little bit further. And that 
how do I explain this in like an easy way? Because it's a little complicated in my head. It just is different than photography. Of course, people have different opinions, but photography is more of like, of course you can create and, you know, take, it's not necessarily a pure, 100% pure representation of somebody like straight through. But a lot more people look at photographs and film as not a full creation in the same way that a painter would, if that makes sense. Because it's a little hard to explain, but I, I think it makes sense. Um, so that makes it photography and film a little bit different and you don't have that the same difficulty. Of course, there has been some like kind of back and forth and there's a lot of discussion. And frankly, I think a lot of discussion is really interesting about like what photography means culturally to a lot of people because it's not just in the world of Islam. Um, but, uh, I think Islamic photography and photography from the, um, art world, uh, the Islamic art world or art world of what was I calling it? <laughs> Sorry, I messed myself up. Um, art from the Islamic world. A lot of words here. Photography, like those two different realms of photography are different. And especially as we go into like modern contemporary or modern postmodern contemporary photography, all of these things are different. The introduction of social media makes things different. It's all very complicated and it would make really great like two-barter kind of episode later in the future, stuff like that. There is a, a lot of Islamic um, Muslim artists that utilize the concept of anaconism within their photographic works as well. Um, kind of keeping that idea in mind and like going through the different concepts, both in art and in religion, which is, yeah, just really interesting. So the reason why I think that anaconism is just an interesting style concept, part of art history is because I think that it makes a lot of sense. And um, I don't know a lot about monotheistic religions in general. I know very basic stuff, um, especially with Christianity. I've never taken like history of Christianity course or anything like that. Um, I also don't know a lot about Judaism. I just listen to a lot of people and their experiences and the things that they explain. Um, unfortunately, I find religion sometimes difficult to um, remember and understand. So I think it makes a lot of sense to me. I'm not a religious person. Um, and of course I know there are some issues, but I'm just talking about the basics of the concept and what that has led to. I think that this, a lot of the arts styles that occurred over centuries, the type of architecture and architectural design that occurred and the interior design and the textual uh, textile design and the ceramics and stuff just simply wouldn't exist if somebody didn't create this like kind of prophecy if you will um it's just really cool to see how people honor their beliefs and their god in this way with art and how it also stretches across regions and and changes with different regions and cultures um I just think it's really cool and beautiful. And I really love ornateness. I am not a minimalist. I'm very much a maximalist. So I just love to stare. And I just wanted to talk about this because I think it's really interesting um, and a really interesting aspect to Islamic art and art of the Islamic world and also religious art in general, because it's not the first time that like idolatry has been discussed. Um, medieval Christian art goes through a lot of this. Um, which I'll definitely talk about. Because, like, 
you know, talking about like gothic art and that's one. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> I'm just rambling at this point. But yeah, I just think it's really, really interesting. Like, how do we make art without people? Um, and also throughout art history, because of like Western art history and how we kind of rate things, figural stuff like historic narratives and religious narratives are like at the top, but like landscapes and abstract design, you know, isn't really acceptable. And, um, you know, eventually we get into abstraction and where it's just, you know, graphic design is different, paintings are different. And of course, I don't think that we would have had that type of art um, without multiple cultures, um, one of them being Islamic art in particular. All right, so that's this week's episode. I'm honestly really nervous about it because it's been a while since I took a class on Islamic art and art in the Islamic world, and I'm not the most confident. My thing is more like modern art, so that's why I try to make the connections to it a little bit so it's better for me to understand and be able to talk about because I'm more familiar with it. But regardless, I hope you learned something. Um, yeah, I'm really nervous to post this. I hope it's okay. And... Um, yeah, again, next week I'm going to be on a little staycation, vacation, whatever you want to call it, um, being safe, doing all the stuff. I've done research. We're doing outside activities, all this kind of stuff. Um, and I'm really excited. So next week you're going to have, you're going to hear from basically me right now. <laughs> um, anyway, I hope you're okay. Um, take care of yourself. And this has been For Art's Sake and Our History and Museum podcast. And I've been your host, Rhea. Bye. <laughs>